Hello everyone, it's Andy Wilson here from the uh, Traveller in the Evening podcast. Um, before we do anything else, could I just remind everyone that if you want to stay up to date with news and events from the Traveller in the Evening, uh, both on the blog and the podcast, then come, come and check us out on Substack. So that's travellerintheevening.substack.com where you can subscribe to stay up to date. So today I have with me a Jason Wright. Uh, Jason is a psychoanalytic psychotherapist. Uh, he was involved in uh, theatre for a while before then, I believe, or perhaps still is. We'll find out. Uh, Jason was the clinical director for the Core Trust, uh, which is a charity. Uh, was uh, is Jason? Is it still? It was no, it closed uh, a few years ago. Right, so it was a was a charity dealing principally uh, with addiction, you know, people, um, with addicts. We'll be talking about that uh, a little later. Um, and uh, Jason was, uh, was one of the founders of the Core Trust, or certainly the CEO. Um, but along with him was uh, the, mu the the musician Jackie Levin, uh, L-E-V-N, who's a, of whom I'm a huge fan. Uh, Jackie was a Scottish folk musician originally, and then he was in the really tremendous post-punk, punk, punk well, at the same time as punk, uh, band Doll by Doll, who was superb. And then he, he went on to release... I don't know, more than I think more than twenty solo albums under a couple of different names, but mostly as Jackie Levin, and those albums are, are certainly worth your attention. So if you don't know Jackie Levin, go and look him up. Um, L E V E N, as I say. More recently, Jason was the founder of the group psychotherapy practice number forty two, and I'm sure we'll be talking about that. But principally, I invited Jason onto the show today to talk about his uh, new book, uh, Blake's Job, Adventures in Becoming, uh, in which he applies his Jungian perspective to the story of Job in the Old uh, Testament, which I assume everybody knows, but it's all about the trials of Job and how Job's faith is tested. Um, but his treatment, obviously, is very, very inf inflected through Blake's treatment of the story of Job and in Blake's illustrations to the book of Job. Uh, something that Blake worked on over many years. I can't remember the dates, but I think I think Blake started uh, creating illustrations to the Book of Job in in, in the early eighteen hundreds. Eighteen oh five is the first thing. There you go, eighteen oh five. And but he was working on them through to the early twenties, a few years before his death. He produced a series of different sets. I think originally a set for his friend Thomas Butts, and then a set for John Linnell. Uh, which were watercolours, and then he, he did the engraved set with Linnell, um, which is how most people know, know this work. So Jason's book, you know, uh, treats of Blake's treatment of the story of Job and his illustrations in order to uh, il illustrate his points about Jungian psychotherapy and, and reflect his experience. So, um, yeah, so we'll be talking about that mostly. And um, as I say, Jason's been a theatre director, so perhaps... I mean, I intend to talk about the uh, core and Jackie Levin, but you know, we're we're not going to dwell on that too long because I'm sure people who've tuned in today are mostly thinking about Blake and Job and so on. But nevertheless, I do want to talk about Jackie and the Core Trust, the experience of which clearly is an important part of the book, because Jason draws on it repeatedly in order to illustrate his points about both Blake and Job. 
But before we get into any of that, as I mentioned that Jason had been a theatre director, so maybe we could start off by asking Jason how a theatre director ended up uh, being a psychotherapist at the core trust. Uh, so that's not such an unusual journey from the theatre into psychotherapy. I work with uh, quite a lot of people. There are quite a lot of people in my practice that I run um, who were actors or worked in the theatre before they trained as psychotherapists. Um, my particular journey is quite specific. I wanted to become a Jungian analyst or um, uh, be involved in the Jungian firmament of some sort when I was about 16. Um, what happened was um, I ended up producing and directing a play at a school I was at. Um, and uh, during that time, a friend of mine handed me a form to go to Central School of Speech and Drama, which I went to to train in stage management. Um, and suddenly I found myself in the theatre for 10 years. And about halfway through that, I thought, this isn't where I'm going to stay. And I started retraining back towards psychotherapy and towards becoming uh, a, a Jungian or transpersonal psychotherapist. I'm actually quite broad in my thinking. I've done, uh, I've trained originally in the tension between psychoanalysis and Jungian analysis, but I also did a transpersonal training and I've done uh, a group training too, and all sorts of different add-ons that one does as one goes through one's career. So my path was uh, quite specific um, and really an arts-based uh, psychotherapy practice uh, roots itself in something creative. My creativity is linked to drama. I'm quite interested in moving a bit more back in that direction uh, now as so, I uh, come later in my psychotherapy career. Um, so the journey is not actually that unusual. I think often I do quite a lot of group work and uh, one can approach group work as one might approach the rehearsal room so that there's a perpetual process of looking for what is creative, what's alive. And then as a therapist, one follows that and tries to allow that to unfold into someone's life or the life of a group or the life of people in a group in the way that one would do in the rehearsal room with a group of actors who have a text and are looking for a way to bring that text to life. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking of actors improvising and thinking at the same time of a Freudian analysis and free association and things like that. So there's clearly uh, there was some continuity there. Um, can I ask you specifically about the core trust? Because uh, I know that Jackie was involved, and um, um, but I don't know, was he the founder of it or did he initiate it? I have to correct you. Uh, I just want to interrupt you at the beginning. I didn't found core. Uh, Jackie Lieben and a woman called Carol Wolfe founded Core, well, he said it was a heroin habit, which I assume it was, which came along, I think, after he'd been strangled, certainly towards um, the end of the first part of his career. Um, and uh, they got funding from Westminster. The building that the Core Trust was in, which was a group of uh, working men's cottages for the people who built um, Maryland Station, in a courtyard at the bottom of Listen Grove, I used to say between the chip shop and the dole office. Um, and they were given that, they were squatting it at the time, I believe. 
uh, they were given that and they turned it into a project for uh, helping people uh, end their using. I remember directly they were using um, complementary therapies and psychotherapy, which was a to um, help people with the first part of their letting go, kind of a detox, and then a period of safety whilst people let go of using it began to search for a new life. Um, I came along, I, I worked with Jackie in uh, what was then called the Mythopoetic Men's Movement, became the Expressive Men's Movement. We had a social connection, um, and I joined a men's group that he was in as I left. Uh, the theatre um, and was beginning my own training. I happened to be living outside London, came back to London and had an itinerant life for a while whilst I was trying to re-establish myself. Um, and uh, I took on a placement at core, but because of um, how things are in the voluntary sector, I came with a lot of managerial skills from um, the theatre. So uh, I ended up running the place. Um, fairly shortly after my arrival. I then took it on to um, augment the work that Jackie had done setting it up uh, and others, Carol and uh, a group of people who were around practice. I took it on into something that was a more structured program and actually was kind of more long-lasting so that we'd take people right the way through from the point that they stopped using uh, at least once through the vicissitudes of their their um, soul, I'll use that word as we're speaking on a Blakeian podcast, um, uh, to the possible return to a new life. So core, if I remember, means courage to stop, order in life, release from addiction, and entry into new life. That's that's from years ago. I'm amazed I can remember that. Carl, well, that raises a couple of questions for me um, in no particular order. One is, I, I, I think it's a bit shocking. No one's published a biography of Jackie Dean, and I'd love to find out a lot more about his life. But in the absence of that, my, my understanding is that um, uh, Jackie was a user himself, and that he started using after he was attacked uh, one night and suffered some physical damage and, and ended up using at the end of that or something. I don't know the actual truth of um, uh, um, and with Jackie that's always a little difficult to get at what objective truth might be. He's a very mercurial and um, the homeopaths would call him a tubercular figure so he tends to move on. Um, certainly by the time he was at um, the cottages in Listen Grove, he had a habit. When that habit would have started and how it would have got into the place it was, God alone knows, it's going to be um, in uh, early mid-80s. So it'll be full of that, uh, you know, what Thatcher's Britain was like at that time, what West London was like at that time, which is not what it's like now. Um uh, so the story was that he was trying to release himself from his habit at that time. Um, there was a lot of conflict between him and uh, the people that took it. He left that 
established a new relationship. Carol Rolfe, who set it up with him, who was his partner at the time, took court over. Um, then she left. Jackie was chair of the board. Then there was um, other people who were running the project. It moved much more towards being a more ordinary um, um, voluntary sector organization working with addicts. Um, and then uh, I came along with a woman called Paraling McDonald, and we held it uh, with Jackie through uh, a transition to something that was, in an odd way, quite extraordinary. Yeah, um, I, I said I'd keep this bit about Jackie short so we could move on to Blake, but I, I still have a few questions. I don't keep going. Oh, I mean, actually, when we talked about this a few weeks ago, you know, while setting up this podcast, you also then described Jackie as mercurial, quote unquote, and I thought, yeah, I bet there's some history there, you know, it's that, that kind of word. But a couple more questions. Uh, first one is, why did Jackie set it up? Because yes, uh, he, yeah, he had a habit, and the, but did he think this was a, a new kind of approach that was vitally needed? Why an extra support for addicts? Well, not yeah. Even, yeah. Sorry, you have to think about when it happened. So he was a creative person. Um, I didn't know Carol at all, really. And I imagine she, she was a very creative person. Um, I, I, may, I imagine they were quite wild together. Um, they found themselves in this place. Um, he was intensely charismatic, so that people would have arranged themselves around him and they would have started helping each other and then helping others to stop using. My understanding of the stories that he told me about how that happened, I came along way after all of that had transpired. It was set in the kind of mind, mind body, spirit, holistic frame. So um, it was called the holistic approach to addiction. Um, it used... Um, I won't remember the list now, a big range of complementary therapies. When they set it up, they weren't so interested in psychotherapy or that particular aspect of the psyche that I was. So I altered that quite radically. Um, and uh, were quite straightforward, I think, and quite perfunctory about people letting go, stopping using. But it was a new thing. It did get picked up by Princess Diana, so there was a whole big, thing with Princess Diana and a dinner of the great and good. Again, that was a slightly before me, so I sadly didn't get an invitation, just had a, a, a picture of her hanging on the wall of the fireplace. But um, it, that, was a, that was a big, big thing, that dinner. Um, by that time, Jackie had moved on from court. Um, he was chair, but he wasn't uh, working there. Um, and that provided some funds. I can go ask you one more um, for me, important thing is so for background. I, I didn't get into Jackie even until long after Doll by Doll, and yeah. I thought probably I don't know he might have already died by the time I got into him. But, but I did know of him, and I did uh, want to go and see him perform actually at the Royal. It was at the Royal Festival Hall with uh, who was she with Linda Thompson and and uh, David Thomas. I was kind of put off exploring him despite his wonderful voice because of this men's movement thing, which I just assumed was something to do with those guys who stand over motorways complaining about child access. You can say something about what, what the men's movement was. That couldn't be further from the truth. Mm. Such an enormous question. I'm trying to start 
to decide where to start with it. So um, my reading of what this particular form of men's movement came from was a response to uh, the first wave, I think they're now called feminist movement in the 70s. So um, Robert Bly, along with James Hillen and probably Michael Meade, the primary movers in this were looking for or trying to contain a masculine response to that. Now, there's a way, um, I think it's a little um, uh, too broad, but there's a way of looking at um, uh, our trajectory as a feminization of our culture over the last hundred years. Um, and that, what, was, what was that held? in a masculine context. Well, it becomes very complex now as we look actually towards transgender and the change of uh, what gender might mean altogether and how one might think of that as like my children tell me, gender as a social construct, not an actual thing. It would be a Jungian idea to, to say that it's an error to confuse those um, abstract and archetypal notions with your actual body. So a Jungian idea, um, which could be seen as some proto-move towards where we are now with transgender, is that there's a contrasexual internal um, archetypal structure, say animus or anima. So if we think of Dante, because we're thinking about Blake, that would be Beatrice, uh, um, Dante. Um, and the, there's an animus figure inside uh, women. And I think that's an overly simplistic way, but it's certainly So there was an attempt to find a space where one could open to what that was and what that was culturally as a man and what was the response, what's the response to um, a change in the gender dynamic. Uh, and being... Quite Jungian, it looks at that mythically. So then you can look back to where does the myth shift? Where does the myth shift from it being a matriarchy to a patriarchy? Um, it's that point 5,000 years ago in Babylon where there's a, sh a cadential shift from a, a, a matriarchal frame to a patriarchal frame. And then you have the outfall of that is the one final God and where we are now. Shifting, I think, now to something other. Well, thanks for that. Um, finally, on, on Jackie, um, yeah, one of my favorite songs by him, the, the Sexual Loneliness of Jesus Christ, the lyrics of which I recommend anyone have a look at and make of them what you will. I'm, I'm really fascinated by it. It's one of my favorite songs. It's from the album... Uh, creatures of light and darkness, which itself yeah. kind of sounds a bit youngkin to me. Yeah. But the cover of the album, I, I happen to notice, after you mentioned James Hillman's Pooh Papers, that's the has the same cover as that book. So I wondered if Jackie was dabbling in youngkinism or something, or if you knew anything about that connection. Well, um, he personally would not be very analytic. He's poets and he would be poetically orientated. He had read voraciously, he had a very clear understanding of Hillman. Hillman was very deeply uh, embedded in that whole men's movement thing at that point. Um, 
there'd be a hundred hundred of us that would go down to uh, Gaunt's house, which itself was an ex-public school in uh, Dorset, and spend a week working through processes. James would come and hold that, um, as would Robert and um, uh, Michael Mead. There was uh, Martine Prechtel, who was a shaman, who was involved with that. Um, there's a guy called William Ayer, who's a poet who carries that work forward. Um, uh, I think there's a guy called Michael Shaw, who's also carried that work forward quite a lot. So the work is still there, not necessarily actually so much longer orientated to um, men's work. But the mythopoetic movement wasn't just about men's work. It was about the use of myth and poetry as a means of engaging with uh, what Hillman would talk about, the work of the soul. So that would that would uh, have a platonic frame that there's a soul that's in between uh, some emanation and some manifestation on the ground. And he, and he then makes the link between soul and psyche, uh, which two worlds are the same, and then we're into psychology and where psychology has come now. Um, and then... Um, we are living in a time which is too logic orientated and we need to move towards something which is more maybe in the arena of Hermes. So those two are linked more uh, imaginal. So you then end up with um, uh, James's idea of the poetic basis of mind, which is what I moved to. In the book. So I think, I think, the final parts of what you were saying there lead us very nicely into the discussion of your book, you know, the critique of such overly logical. Let's get into that. I have to say, I read the book because I have a kind of beef with Jungianism, but I don't know what it is yet. I've been trying to work it out. You know, sometimes I'm a little bit uneasy about the Jungian appropriation of Blake. And um, I wanted to read your book, it's coming out. So I thought this will get me, you know, I'll be able to get some traction here and I'll work out perhaps. Uh, what irks me, it didn't quite work out that way because I think the, the sort of practical focus of your book with all the examples from sessions with, with addicts and so on, such made it a very different kind of book about Blake, much more interesting in, in my opinion. I mean, I thought it was absolutely fascinating, that kind of content and how you applied it. But before we get into that, I, I think it might be useful if I ask you to, you know, sort of why Blake, not, not so much about what's in Blake that's of interest, but you know, other youngins have written about Blake. I think um, June Singer has. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's her name. So, what made you think that you know maybe not I ought to write about Blake as well? But you know, what made you think that Blake would be an interesting way of focusing your thoughts or lessons about um, your therapy? How did, how did you get into it? So, um, maybe one could talk about synchronicity to use a, a Jungian term. <laughs> So synchronicity seem to be events that have uh, don't have a, uh, external cause. You can't see the causal relationship. They just synchronously arise. I would say there's a deeper, better resonant connection kind of thing like that. I won't go into detail. I don't think the Jungians would think I personally am very Jungian. Um, but it's not that broad a church. I think there's only 3,000 unions in the world. There are only 3,000 members of the international organization. There's a lot of people that have brought his thinking into their thinking. The clue to your um, uh, beef, I think, is the word appropriation. Organizations tend to appropriate things if you're arranging 
any thinking into an organized structure, it becomes um, inevitably, given our structures of thinking these days, colonial. So um, I would have an ambivalence about Jung colonizing Blake. But the way we learn things, the way um, we structure knowledge, uh, certainly in a logical sense, um, under the uh, under the uh, in the Western canon, uh, or certainly the Western canon following the Greeks, under the Apollonic, things tend to get uh, appropriated, colonized, and turned into something else. I'm not um, castigating uh, the Jungians for that, but it would disgruntle someone like you, and does certainly disgruntle someone like me. I do kind of go with Kathleen Rank, and I think you're also a little ambivalent about that. She was also influenced by the Jungians. You know, they were reading the same books. So, so they were talking about the same stuff. Yeah. If you don't actually inhabit the stuff, you don't see the difference. But like uh, R.M. Buck, who was a thinker and talked about cosmic uh, consciousness, says that uh, Blake was probably one of the few uh, fully realized human beings, which I kind of do by somehow he got something extraordinary together. Um, he can be read in all sorts of different ways, and we put into him what it is that's happening as a process inside of us. So the actual story about how I ended up with these um, particular images, it's not even Blake that I was so interested in, it is these specific images, was that I was going to use it to tell a story of um, the building of Selfhood. For my training um and so i then became attached to them and that's what it became a story of me, me thinking about myself so i've spent um the last 30 years thinking about that and then what the outfall of that might be well so how do we um let's let's take that as a point of departure for you to talk more about specifically what's in the book i mean there's how many plates are there in the class 21 21 plates uh, so um, without going through so, the sorry. sorry, there's something that I need to say. Um, it comes at a really important point and is a really important moment. I think both for uh, Britain and the world and Blake. Uh, and there's a really, really interesting psychic issue attached to that. So um, Blake's starving to death. He's done Jerusalem. He's done his journey. He's got there. If we follow that metempsychosis kind of view of the world of souls coming in and out, um, he'd done it. Would he need to stay? Catherine was um, serving him lunch on an empty plate just to point out he might want to go out and get a job because they need something to eat. Um, and uh, he bumps into John Linnell. Now, John Linnell's a, as much a dissenter as him, um, all part of that second wave of um, of um, it's not evangelical I can't remember the right word to use but anyway Christian revivalism I think um, uh, that's around at that time in America it's one thing here it's it's slightly different there's uh, uh, Blake's mother was a Moravian so there's all of that heat there it's also there but in a different form in John Linnell he's a young man Blake's an aging man he's in his late 60s by then 62 63 and maybe a bit older maybe nearer 65 
he gets picked up by Linnell, uh, Palmer, uh, the ancients, they call themselves that little group of young artists. And suddenly uh, his um, capacity is recognized. And he stays. I think he has a fairly joyous last five years or so. Um, and uh, the first bit of work that's produced in that is the Job. And it's like a complete condensation of his entire myth. So it's all pulled together and held in that story. Now, I won't say that Job is the story of our time and addiction is the symptom of our time. It's, uh, uh, I would uh, go so far as say that we're all addicted. We're all compulsively dependent because there's a gap inside of us. The gap inside of us is the gap that Blake fills, which is a direct connection to something divine. But of course, that's as infinite as we are. I would talk about the infinite subject. So it presents in all sorts of different forms, and then we argue over what the different forms are. So that points back to your question earlier, is that you then start organizing that. You get the organized religions, the priesthood that Blake moans about, and um, uh, the desire to acquire and hold and own something which is unownable, that we are all, in my book, I'm describing it as participants in. And as we become closer and more conscious of that participation, some change can take place. And I think like we were living through then, we are living through now, a time where that is taking place. My argument is very simple. It's taking place because the number of us that there are on the planet. I don't know how many there were when Blake was alive, but when we were born, there were three, there were a third of the number of us. I think one of the things about your book that really engaged me was that, that, that kind of notion about it, about its topicality, if you like, and about a change in consciousness that, to some extent is required and to some extent is actually happening yeah in response to our situation i i responded to that myself um because i i'm thinking similar thoughts but kind of from a different angle i mean a lot of my thoughts about this are quite influenced by the ecological philosopher yeah. Jonathan Morton, but he also yeah. talks about the necessity to make a sort of phase change in our attitude and our consciousness and our attitude towards the world needs a radical reworking yeah and it is because of our, our impact you say you know the, the size of the global population he would say uh you know the anthropocene and our impact yeah yeah, yeah yeah so i'm very interested in those parallels i wonder i mean clearly the book of job the you know the in the old testament is an absolutely you know uh, I, I, I don't know what the right word is but it's the go-to book if you want to talk about transformation of your attitude to god like young himself or uh, obviously wrote a book about this, uh, The Answer to Job, in which he... Very book, and also in its own way about ecology, about our relationship to the... I haven't actually read it yet. I think I was looking at it earlier this week, and I intend to read it. I mean, I very much gleaned that he had his own version of what is the transformation that takes place there, but I, I don't really get, get, get into it. I think we'll focus on... Yes, yeah, I don't want to, too, because there's an awful yeah. lot. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting, obviously. Wonderful. Slightly different. And then... 
Blake's take on it in the illustrations is also, you know, a very original interpretation of what that transformation is. But that just leaves us to decide what the transformation of consciousness is. You know, so I wonder if you could say something about, um, obviously, again, not not sort of image by image, but in terms of the general story arc of the plates, what you think the key points are uh, as they relate to this change in consciousness. And as they relate to your experience with with addicts, um, and again, I'll, 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 I'm inviting you to comment on that. But in terms of framing that, one thing I was interested in, and this is to do with the Rainer aspect and and stuff like that, is the relationship in Blake between apocalypse and eschatology, where apocalypse is a personal transformation, and eschatology perhaps is a, a more widespread social one. But both of which you've mentioned. But the interesting thing to me is the relationship between them. And, and you, you, you say several times in, in the book that you're interested in the apocalyptic aspect, the cyclical aspect of transformation and of, you know, uh, change of consciousness. But the, the fact that that has to go on, it's an ongoing process, as it were, normally that, that would be seen as a personal matter as opposed to a social matter. Um, but on the other hand, you constantly talk in terms of the group experience, the group dynamic, and so on, and the necessity of that, the group transformation. So there's about a thousand questions. <laughs> the one I'll run with is the one you come with last. And then um, if uh, I lose my train of thought, which is quite likely because it's enormous, which is last one. Um, then you'll have to ask more to try and direct where you want it to go. Um, we've just come out of what Adam Curtis calls the century of the South. Um, we've been, uh, certainly in the West, incredibly self-orientated, building a self. It's about me. What is me? My view, actually, is that that is infinite. That's congruent with a Jungian notion of selfhood. The self with big S is um, the whole and part of the psyche at the same time. The ego, which is the bit that experiences consciousness, is an archetype in the middle of that in which consciousness is experienced, trying to hold together what's going on around the fantasy of inside and outside. Um, I would say all of that is fantasy because... Um, Everything is happening everywhere all at once, as a quantum theorist might say. Um, and I use, as you know, the work of Bone and White, David Bohm and Alfred North Whitehead to try and discuss that. Um, uh, both of them are extraordinary thinkers, but in the same arena as um, Jung, because they're dual aspect monists, saying that there's uh, a, a spirit and a and a matter somewhere between the two. I might think uh, uh, if Blake is in that camp, he's right up the far end of where everything's actually in spirit. Because I've been hanging out with him so long, I'm moving more in that direction myself, but that, that could just be association. So if you read the Job myth, as you might um, in a current Christian framework for looking it, at it as a process of personal apocalyptic transformation. Um, it's an individual narrative of Job. I think we're in a time where we're moving away from that selfhood 
to the context in which that selfhood sits. Um, so it's um, myself is an event uh, in many different frames and on many different levels, and is arising. Uh, well, I I'm also ambivalent about time, but it's arising in this moment. Okay. And it only exists in this form in the moment that, like you and I sitting here having this conversation. That's it. I have that self. Then something moves on. We understand that as time and space, um, and something changes. Um, and then it's something different. All I'm doing is taking that idea and moving it into a group and a wider context, partly because of, the, of what's being called to us in what we understand as an ecological crisis. As we act, the thoughts we have, and Bohm's very clear about this, informs the movement of the whole. We are coherent with what's happening. I'm much more interested in looking at the ecological crisis as the crisis, the apocalyptic crisis we're facing in our own minds about what's becoming, rather than we've just done too much oil out the ground and we've made the world too hot. That is a very clear narrative, very material narrative, and something we absolutely have to pay attention to. But it's not it. What we're holding, what we're thinking, what we're doing as 8 billion of us on the planet is it. What has the planet made by getting this going? Now, that's a bit too anthropocentric to look at it as if it's got an idea, like we would have an idea of doing stuff. It's much brought, but we don't have really, I think, yet the capacity to think that through or imagine that. I think Blake does. He gives you a framework for it. But you have to dig away at what it was he was trying to get at and what his images mean in order to get there. I think there's an, there's an element, for example, in, in Timothy Morton of saying that reality itself is now pushing us in a certain direction, albeit that that's a reality that what that we created. It's a social yeah. 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 But it, uh, it's now out of our hands and it's now sort of staring back at us and telling us something new about our relationship to the world. Where, you know, whereas we previously imagined that this kind of ego-type character you're talking about looks at the world as um, material to be organised, exploited, processed and things like that. Now it's emerging that not only can we no longer do that, but that was never really the case. We were that wasn't it, I know. About that. I find it, in terms of the collective thing, one aspect of the original Job story is, of course, that his friends are all involved. So you, you're sort of telling stories about these group psychoanalytic sessions, um, and, 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 and whereas Job's story, just like that, involves his relationship to the three friends who come along, and they, they have various relations with him. They kind of moralise with him. They pontificate about the nature of God and Job and what he must have done wrong. It struck me, preparing for this talk, I reread the the Bible, that, that book of Job, and uh, it struck me that, uh, you know, everyone knows that the friends are a bit inadequate. Um, their, their answers are a bit half-cocked. It, it strikes me they're not always wrong answers as such. They're just a bit pedantic or formulaic or legalistic and things like that. They don't get to the core of the matter, which seems to be, I think, Job's alienation from God, not the fact that he's 
having a hard time as such, but that you can't find any explanation for it or any center. Anyway, it seemed to me that part of Job's experience and his transformation is a kind of reaction against his friends of realizing that he's cut off from the people he's trying to have a dialogue with, which forces him deeper into himself. But that doesn't quite chime, I think, with what you're saying. I don't know. What, what do you think about that? So the line I've taken is you have to look at where the Job story arises. Job story arises 600 BC, just around the time of the Axial Age, that kind of shift that we were talking about. Move away from its relevance now in the context of ecology that you're talking about, I think is is uh, resonant. Um, uh, there's a, a, a Jungian called Adam Malpan who looks at the Job story as a, a guilt at the murder of the nature gods, the previous gods. Um, and and those gods actually offer us the kind of thinking and the kind of embedment in the world that we feel we have come from um, and would offer us some other way of thinking, although the context is different. To So uh, as you move the Job story away from an individual narrative, uh, and um, the way I frame the individual narrative of Job in the context of my thinking is he's holding something for the group. What he's changing, he's changing for the group, but it's by and with the group. The comforters are holding on to the previous dogma, which is the issue that you have with uh, the Jungian firmament, is that they're trying to make Blakean dogma fit with Jungian dogma, you know, thereby lies a war. What you have to look through, you know, the dogma's really useful, it keeps you from bumping into people, but you have to look through it to the real intent and uh, I would say the divine behind it. But the divine is unknowable, you know, it's beyond our capacity to know because it can't be reified, it can be born, it can be felt, it can be imagined, it, uh, in deep imagination, not the fragmentary imagination, like Coleridge defines two types of imagination, primary and secondary. It's the more powerful, deeper imagination. It can be imagined, but it's not it's not reifiable into event because of its infinitude. Um, so Job is struggling with that, and he's remaining truthful to what's real for him, but hangs on too much to the dogma. And the dogma beats him up until he gets to like plate 11 where he's affrighted with dreams. Then at plate 12, he meets someone who is uh, like Enoch, so close to the divine. Uh, and he says, it's not about you. That's the key moment in the whole piece is it's not about you. Uh, Blake is presenting in, in the joke and that's it. It's what do we do? for God. I mean, there's various ways of thinking about that, even in Kabbalistic terms. What is it that has been, arises and is created in us that we resolve? Now, that happens specifically in Job. It's now happening on a wider communal level now. I mean, that's fascinating. To what extent do you think, so the transformation that takes place in Job, in his attitude, that, that releases him, really, you know, and he's, this the 
it's a transformation we desire, so to say. Um, that transformation involves obviously letting go of something from the past, which will say a dogmatic interpretation of the relationship with God in favor of something else. And and you've talked about that something else may, maybe to do with the you know the matriarchal gods or nature gods and that kind of thing, a pre, a previous So that that's a story that you know, there's a story, there's a lot of people who would disagree with it, a lot of feminists who would disagree with it, is that there was a matriarchal culture, then there's a patriarchal culture. Now we're at some place where we're looking for something different. Mm. I used to quite like that story. I don't think things are quite that linear. If you look, you know, for as a specific example, if you look at grief, people say there's a, you know, a process through grief of denial, um, rage, sadness, uh, accept, um, integration and acceptance or whatever it is. So when you're actually in the room with someone who's in grief, they oscillate between all of those positions all the time. Everything in fact is happening all at once. We just make up a lot of stories to try and make them manage. What I, I really got from your book was the kind of the reflection of the experience of, of being with people in a group, in therapy and holding space with them. And it's not a theoretical argument about athlete rain or anything else. It's about phenomenology of that and guiding people through that. And that's why I found it such a rich and fascinating book. I, I did end up, I sort of went back and, you know, as I say, reread the, the book of Job in the Old Testament and read some commentary on it. And one thing I thought, and I think it reflects what you're saying, but I'd be interested in in, in your opinion of it. But one thing that it seemed to me is, for, for me, one of my favourite plates in the Job thing is, I think it's plate 15, you'll remember, but it's the one with Leviathan on the behemoth. Oh, that's really, yeah, that's really extraordinary. I think that's the plate that makes it uh, I put that's why I put it on the front of the book. That's plate makes it ecological. I, I think so. And I, 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 I was reading recently a lot of stuff about sort of Canaanite and Ugaritic creation myths, which are marked just where the Leviathan comes from, the twisting snake. Yeah. And there's something to do with calming the waters and clearing the chaos. We know this story in the Babylonian Enuma Elish, where you know, Tiamat and, and, and battles with the sea dragons and things like that. But apparently that is derivative of a, an older Canaanite myth, basically the same story, in which Baal subdues, um, you know, the Leviathan, the twisting snake. And the more I learned about that, the more I could see how it was structuring the book of Job, because there's, a, there's another, one of the most beautiful bits of the book is when Job curses the day he was born. And there's a bit in there where he mentions the sea god uh, Yam, and this turns out to be like Rahab, another name for Leviathan. But when he says, I, I wish you could blot out the day I was born and make it dark again, and that's why he associated with the sea goddess, because all of that chaos is associated with the darkness, and Baal was associated with the light. So to see Leviathan, to me, when, when God says to Job, you know, I made the Leviathan, it's not... I've treated this in some of my um, blog posts as being about nature gods and the titans of the Greeks coming back. God somehow incorporates in this version the chaos, which in other versions before the book of Job, the chaos is the alternative to God. You know, ne'er the twain shall meet. It's the chaos that has to be conquered by God in order for God to become, you know, the, the king's use or Baal or whatever. That's how our society is created, the order, 
that we live within as a civilization is created by defeating Tiamat and Seth and these gods of chaos. And it struck me when when God says, look, I made the behemoth and Leviathan, he's, he's sort of inviting you to open up to what you can't rationally master. What He says they're better than you. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's, and you've got to come to live in that. I mean, it's like it's like a. So I, 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 I'm going to stop you there because um, I want to actually uh, ground this in something much more um, rounded, much more human. All of those are stories of um, how uh, people struggle with becoming. Um, I don't know. Uh, well, two months, five thousand years ago. As uh, they, you know, there's all sorts of complex ways of thinking about what you go formation, we can well, whatever. Practically, when you're in the room, people can be desperate, particularly coming to the end of um, an addiction. It is absolutely desolate and desperate, wild, destructive, rageful. Um, uh, early life forces much, much bigger than anything that we can really imagine uh, are at war in our soul. Death seems like um, really the only choice. But you know somewhere you want to live. So what you do is you anesthetize it. Heroin does it brilliantly. You vomit a bit and you can't move and um, nothing matters. Absolutely nothing matters. Now, it's very it, uh, we live in a world that kind of understands things through trauma at the moment. So you can imagine that rooted in traumatic early toilet training. You know, life was hideous. Your parents beat you or, or you had nowhere to live or your parents were psychotic. All of those stories I can tell you about people who I've actually known. So you hold that, as a therapist you hold that, but also as um, a person, as the Joe, you hold that and you try and find a place to choose to live. At that point, and my argument is it's a relational point, it doesn't matter who you're related to. It doesn't matter like if, if it's an idiot like Fires or if it's Eliu. Um, it's possible for something to, to, to change. Uh, and I mean, you know, uh, naively, I think that's simply love. Whether you see it as the love of God or the actual love of an actual person. That creates the space in which those monsters can be dealt with can be engaged with. And those monsters, to use Jungian framework, are archetypal. So they're bigger than you. They're, you know, they're enormous. I read a poem once about Tuesday morning on Camden Road. Cyclists whip past me. And I thought, you're just going to get smacked. You're looking for trouble. The lorry driver that nearly ran him over didn't even know he was there. You know, those forces... You're not the point. They don't even notice that you're there. They'd rather not squat you. But then you turn that round to what are we doing for the planet? We're thinking about what the planet is trying to do. 
what Leviathan is, the, the green giant, it is the earth. We're thinking about what that is. And there's a wonderful thing that um, I educated my kids at the Steiner school. One of the Steiner mothers turned around and said, the problem with oil is we're processing dinosaur karma. Now, <laughs> I looked at it and thought, we're, we're, we were having a horrible afternoon taking the kids around London Zoo. I'm ambivalent about being in London Zoo because it's about as ecologically unsound as you can get uh, following the Victorians. She's standing there, you know, all, for all the world, the greatest yummy mummy, talking about dinosaur karma. I think just magic. I mean, Jason, uh, you, I think you, you just summed up the thrust of your book, but also summed up what really literally fascinated me about the book was that because you, you, you're always applying this stuff to your practice and your experience, I very much felt, you know, the presence in the room of this chaos, of this unruliness, uh, which made it a very different kind of Blake book to, uh, you know, any I'd read before. So, you know, I didn't get my... Um, it didn't flesh out my controversies with Jungianism or, 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 or Rainer, but it, it, it did something much richer than that. So I want to thank you for that. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint. I've been disappointed. Uh, but it was just a fascinating read for, the, for those reasons. So thank you for explaining that so well. And actually, like I say, clarifying that for me. I mean, uh, um, you know, I'd like to thank you for being on the meeting. I'd really like to encourage anyone listening in to... Um, to uh, follow through on this and, and uh, have a look at Jason's book. I would ask you before we finally finish, Jason, who was your ideal reader? I mean, clearly any therapist or analyst is going to get a lot out of this in terms of, you know, the way you use break to make points about the therapy and the, the analysis. Um, but what about the rest of us who aren't those kind of things? You know, what do you want us to get from it? So uh, that's on the back of the book. Um, I did want to make it accessible um, I'm, my English is uh, not good enough to make it uh, as accessible as a tabloid newspaper. Well, it's, it's completely accessible. Don't, if you're listening, don't. This is bullshit. It's a very good read. Don't worry about that. So um, my reader is someone who has some idea of um, uh, soul and psyche and what they might be struggling with in their life. Um, and a friend of mine read it. Um, and she wrote a puff for the back of the book. Um, and it was at a certain level, it's someone like her I was pointing to. Um, a, 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 you know, an ordinary person who has an interest in the world. She's deeply ecologically minded, actually, which is what pushed me a bit more in that direction. Okay. Thank you for that, Jason. Uh, you know, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. It was a great pleasure reading your book. It really was. And I do encourage people to follow through. Um, maybe there'll be a follow-up discussion between us. We will get into the guts of the rain and the, all the kind of, you know, scholarly things that I like to bat heads about. But I don't think, you know, we, we've uh, needed to do that today. I think you brought out sharply the, what, what's interesting. And I would say unique about your book, but I don't know. Certainly... From a Blakean point of view, it added a whole new dimension to how Blake might uh, matter for us. So thanks again, Jason. And uh, to the rest of you, uh, please do, as I said at the beginning of the show, uh, please uh, go to Substack and check out the Clavera in the evening and, uh, and subscribe, and uh, you'll hear more uh, from us soon if you do that. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Yeah.